Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Roth. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 10, Episode 24, The Mendiolas, Part 2. This half of my conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Mendiola focused mostly around the investigation and the Mendiola's dissatisfaction with the way things were handled by the police and the district attorney. This conversation came after probably a 30 to 40 minute chat that we had in the kitchen after the first half of the interview before we decided to go back in and turn the recorder back on again. Uh, and so a lot of you have a lot of questions. We've got a few things to talk about. I know Zach's got some notes and Mike's, of course, here too. So let's do a quick ad and we'll get right into the show. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you mentioned that you actually had a, a conversation off the record a little bit. Did a lot of the conversation make it back into the record? Or what did you guys sit around and talk about? Yeah, uh, as a matter of fact, a lot of the conversation we had, the interview you heard was kind of recapping. Okay. Um, you know, there were there were parts and there were people. I, th- I think I pointed out a few that like, you know, talking about Jennifer and stuff. I thought the interview was over. You know, we had I had got what I came for, which was to get some background on on um, on Catalina and you know, I want to talk about the you know her financial situation, the complaints, all that stuff. And then when he showed me the letter, kind of thought I was done. And we went, we were st- kind of standing in the kitchen, and we chatted for a while. And that's where the conversation turned, where he started asking me questions. Okay, uh, because Juan was, and that's where I learned like he was really, he's been pissed off for twenty years, twenty five years about the investigation and about how they. So, so I mean, at what point, I mean, you say he's pissed off, but is he pissed off with the investigation? Is he pissed off because he doesn't believe Jennifer did it? What, what is he pissed off about? He thinks Jennifer was involved. Okay. I, I mean, he's, he's certainly after talking to me, he's, he's, he probably is wondering if maybe she wasn't. Well, and, and I mean, that's, that's hard to say, and I'm obviously not, def, not bashing you, but it's, it's obviously you're coming in with this. So it, right. it will change his mind a little bit, yeah. but, but in his opinion, he kind of possibly thinks Jennifer's involved. Yeah, prior to me ever talking to him, mm-hmm. his feeling always was that Jennifer was involved, maybe as a lookout or whatever, and that they never bothered to track down the people that killed his aunt. So he's always been upset with it, and he's always put, you know kind of pushed back against them. And he and well, you heard him say in the in the episode how they just they said nope, we got we got our we got our girl, we got her, and he was like, well, what? He didn't really know until trial 
that there was more, you know, that, that he, the way they presented it to him prior to trial was that Jennifer was a, was a crack addict and that broke into the apartment for drug money and that she killed his aunt. Okay. So he was, he thought they had done a decent job, but he was uncomfortable with a lot. The knife is a thing. I don't think we have any questions about it. So we'll talk about that a little bit. But, you know, he said, you know, unprompted for me about when I asked about the knife that, that they, he, he could tell that they were trying to push him in certain directions. Like the knife was a thing where they kept telling him, well, there's a knife missing, right? You see that, you know, there, isn't there a, a knife missing from the set? And, and he's like, no, there, there wasn't, but they kept hinting at him both, both when he was there on the scene. And then, and then he said again in the uh, trial preparation with the DA's office and stuff that they, you know, he said they, they were hinting at him was the word he kept using that there should be a knife missing when he was there on the scene. And then during the, during the trial prep for his testimony, they were not just hinting, but they were there. He didn't use this word, but it sounded like they were almost like gaslighting him, telling him, well, you said there was a knife missing before. Remember when you were there before you said there was a knife missing. And he was like, there, that was, he said, now that I've gotten past the trauma and everything of the trial, I know, like, no, there was never a knife. That was them saying that. So I wonder if he leaked something in that interview with you that I noticed. I don't know how many people picked up on. Is He he at some point said something about a knife being found, that they told him a knife was found. And and in the conversation, you kind of said, well, no, that they found a wallet. Right. But I wonder if he really leaked something there. Maybe they told him that they had found a knife. Regardless of if it's true or not. Right. I wonder if they said, yeah, Juan, there's a, tell us there's a knife missing. And then down the road, they said, look, we found it. See, there was one missing. It could have been, but it, it sounded. I'm trying to remember that part of the conversation. If that was his wife that had said she thought the wall or that the I knife thought had it been came found. from him, maybe that, that he said that the night that they had found a knife. They didn't say they had found the knife. They had found a knife. Yeah, it's possible. The way they seem to they seem to accept what I said when I told them what they found later was not the knife. It was the wallet. Mm-hmm. And but but you're right. I mean, there's there is always a possibility that they told him that. Or that he misremember. It's hard because you know it's been it's been so long ago. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know I, we've talked about this so many times, but that's where I wonder if that was some leaked information that he was saying without even realizing he was saying it. Yeah, is that maybe he didn't know that, but maybe you know what I mean maybe he believes that because at some point they told him that even though not realizing it. It could be because one thing that was very clear with him is that the police were not honest with him throughout this entire thing, and that's why he's like I said his position is that Jennifer was involved in this mm-hmm. in my, I don't think I played the clip yet. I think I was saving it for later, but my very first interview with him, I asked him if she was involved as a lookout for this murder at 15 years old, do you think that she should be, that she should be spending the rest of her life in prison for that? Or should she be given a second chance? I was just curious his thoughts on it. And I'll, I'll, I'll wait to, to share the thought, but it was definitely something he had to contemplate a, a little bit, but it was his angst that I've gotten from Juan has not been towards Jennifer. It's more towards the police because he figured regardless, I think he doesn't really care much about Jennifer. He thinks she was involved. So she's probably right where she should be. But at the same time, at the same time, he know, you know, he watched a police department convict a, convict a lookout who said two other people stabbed his aunt to death and beat her to death. And mm-hmm. they never even went looking for the people that did it. And, and I think I would be pissed off about that. And I think I've said that, and I know I know other people have said that, but from the beginning, if Jennifer is guilty of what she says she did, there are still people out there. Right. I think we've proven without a reasonable doubt that she is not the killer. 
Yeah, I don't think there's anybody listening here now that thinks that Jennifer is the one that went in there by herself and stabbed Catalina. Exactly. So regardless of where you fall, like there's still somebody out there that was never charged. Right. And I'd be upset about that if I was the family. Yeah. Yeah. He was. A, but, the, but that was what a lot of our conversation was, was him asking me, you know, what I thought of the investigation. And and it was, you know, questions like that. You know, like so when he told me that, you know, they told him she was a crackhead that that had broken there for the money. And that's what I was, I was like, you know, I, I'd explained to him like, that there was one witness, Eva, who said that she had a drug problem. No one else has confirmed that. There's no, we have no evidence of that. Everybody else that knew her said that's not true. I just, and given the fact that we know that Eva lied on her a couple of times, I just, I don't buy it. I said, but she certainly wasn't a crack addict. You know, maybe, you know, I can't tell you she never did any drugs. You know, she was pretty open with me about the fact that she smoked marijuana and drank a little bit, but didn't really like drinking. Um, but it, it just doesn't seem to be that that was the case at all. And so then, then, then he started going on. So the big one was him talking about the, the knife. We talked about the fake voice, which I will get into here at the end of this episode. But that was, you know, I was walking through the different, the different things that happened. And he said, he remembered them telling them, you know, that they heard this fake voice. And I, I walked him through the different statements and he said, you know, his words were, that's bullshit. You know, you, 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 you guys couldn't see him, but you could, you can hear almost you could almost hear his expressions in his face you know he's very charismatic guy and you could kind of tell where his emotions were at by the way that he was speaking one thing you left off on was talking about the address book that possibly Juan's wife had uh-huh. and you said you had hoped that you had had gotten that have you heard any word on that yet i haven't i emailed her last week and i haven't heard i didn't get a phone number when i left she gave me the email address to get in to get in contact with them um, cause I wanted to send them some documents and stuff I did. Cause one of the things I want, I sent them Juan's trial transcript because we had talked one of the things I think it was, I don't think it was during the interview, but in the, in the kitchen time and stuff or after the interview, even we kept talking, you know, when I was, we were talking about like the knife set and I was mm-hmm. like, I was like, I think you tested, like there wasn't the, in the police, but I think you testified that you saw that, that you noticed that there was a knife missing. And that's, and, and he was like, I don't know. He said, and that's when he said, I don't know. He said, I, the, the trial was such a blur. In our trial prep, the DA was was you know was filling my head full of stuff, and and they were they were trying to manipulate him and hint at him to say certain you know just to say certain things. The knife was a big one. They said that they kept you remember, you remember, you remember, and he was like, no, that was the police that were doing that. But he asked me to send him the. I told him I'd send him the trial, and I did um, right after I got home. Send him the trial transcript so we could see what he actually said at trial. But yeah, so that's why we had the email address. But then I did email Mrs. Mendiola, and I haven't heard back from her since then. So I'll I'll probably reach out again uh, because as you know, as I said, we struck out of the church, which was a weird thing. Mm-hmm. I thought it was <laughs> so when I got this e- this very official email back. Yeah, I, I talked to this receptionist or whatever she was. I actually think we have a question about this on the from the listeners. Yeah, let's just go ahead and read that one now. It's from Sarah. It seems odd that the archdiocese wouldn't allow the church workers to pass on your name and contact info or allow them to talk to their people about Catalina. Is this the normal practice for Catholic parishes, or does it point to a disturbing level of butt cover? I I have no idea. I'm not Catholic. I don't know how Catholic churches work. I was pretty shocked because, like I I started to say, I just went in and there's a receptionist there. There was a ton of people. I mean, there was 50 cars in the parking lot, people working in the back of the church. You know, she was very like she even pulled out. They had like yearbooks type things. She pulled out and she was like looking for pictures of Catalina. But there was people other waiting to talk to her. And she's like, okay. She's like, well, give me your card. And she's like, what do you want to do? And I gave her a stack of cards and said, I'm just looking for anyone who knew Catalina 
back then in 95, 96, you know, that era, mid 90s, uh, there was maybe a volunteer and, and she was like, oh, there's, there's still people here that were volunteering back then. I was like, well, good. Any of them that knew her, I'm just trying to get some background on Catalina to help tell the story. And I was like, if you could just, just anybody that knew her, if you could just explain to them that I'm doing this story and I'd love to talk to them and give them my card. And she's like, cool, I'll do that. No problem. And then it was weeks went by, a couple weeks. And then I get this letter that's this very official letter that says that, um, you know, as part of their practice, she had to run my requests by the archdiocese and their like media relations and they denied your request. And so I emailed back. I was like, Okay, I said, I, I mean, I'm not arguing with them, but I just want to make clear what I was asking, that I wasn't asking for, any, you know, as I, as I said then and repeated now, I was like, I, I'm not asking for anyone's names or contact information. What I'm asking for is for people to be given my name and contact information in case they want to talk to me. And she's like, yep, that's exactly how I explained it. And they have denied it. I'm sorry. I think exactly like. The listeners said that they're just covering their own butt because they're probably viewing it as this is contact through the church. This could possibly make the church look bad, even though it has nothing to do with the church Mm -hmm. besides the fact that they were volunteers at the church. They're probably just covering their own butts to make sure the church doesn't look bad. Yeah, I don't know. I thought it was super weird, but I don't know how those those things work. Okay, let's jump into these other questions, guys. First one's from Jill. What does Juan's first statement to the police say? Did he say he talked to her? Did he say he talked to Catalina that morning? I fully believe the prosecutor coached him so that the testimony matched their narrative. Also, is there a statement from his wife? There's nothing from his wife. The, like, from what I've seen through the entire DA file and the police file, there's not a record of them calling her, talking to her. They definitely never interviewed her. I don't, I don't know why that is. I mean, it seems very obvious. They both agreed that it was that not only did Mrs. Mendiola talk to Catalina that morning, but also that the contact from the police uh, notifying them came to to Juan's wife, who then contacted Juan at work. Um, but they didn't document, you know, just this whole case is built around them not documenting everything, right? So as far as Juan's first statement, he doesn't have a statement, of course. They have, there's a report written about him coming to the scene. I was looking for it again. I can't. I can't, I feel like I'm missing one. I can't seem to find it in the police reports, but I have the one written by, uh, Swainton that just says that Juan came there and, and just when they were trying to identify her car, um, that they asked and he said that she didn't have cash and, and that they were, you know, which car was hers and the license plate. But then I was, I was, I was rushing back through some things before we stepped in here to record. And I was looking through Wayman Allen's trial testimony and he is in his testimony trying to get out that Juan, um, identified the missing knife. But he keeps getting objected to because it's hearsay. And he's like, you know, there was a knife, there was a set, and there was one missing that was verified by the by the family that came out. There was a knife missing. And that's part one it said just wasn't true. But I I'm 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 trying to recall somewhere, and it might have just been in Juan's testimony where he says that that they opened the door, that the detective opened the door and showed him a set, and the set was missing a knife. But but again, when I talked to Juan, he said that's just not true. She didn't have a set. She, I mean, he, and his memory was pretty clear. He said she had a drawer with just a bunch of random knives. She didn't own a set of knives at all. One thing you just said that I want to jump back to that, that just struck me is in Juan's comment, you said that she didn't have any money. And that was something in this interview that you guys talked about. Right. It's about her writing tiny checks all the time. Yeah. 
I, I don't think I'd ever heard that before. Anything about her having this checkbook that you've seen, writing these tiny checks. But I think that's pretty good evidence that, that clearly she didn't have cash. Oh, yeah. And, and I don't know how I, I have the checks. They're in the DA's file. I have all of her checks. Mm-hmm. And I just never worked it into an episode, I guess. And I didn't really think about it until we, I was having that conversation. But yeah, she looked like, you know, they were, it, it, I enjoyed like kind of almost feeling a little connected to Catalina in the way that, that, that Juan and his wife were talking about her and laughing and joking about her little quirks. Mm-hmm. But that was one of them. If you look through her, and I'll, I'll post some of them. I have to look and see how they're redacted because I think I might not have posted them because they had like actual account numbers and routing numbers and stuff on them. Um, and I don't know if that account's still active anymore or whatever. But, but there are, the checks are for $1.26, $2.10. There's, there's, most of her checks are for under $4. And they're daily. She's writing a bunch of checks like that. But yeah, that's an, you know, another indicator. When he says she didn't carry cash, that you know the, that's backed up by well you know Mrs. Mendiola said that you know she would always pay for with a check whenever they'd go out shopping on Tuesdays with everything and she didn't have cash and then by looking at her checkbook and see that you know she'd go to the pharmacy and write a check for a dollar and twenty six cents. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. Kathy says, the fact that Catalina stated that a girl was left alone often is very concerning to me. It can't be Jen, Mrs. Mandiolo is referring to because she had only been there a few days. Someone may have called CPS if they had noticed that too. If Eva knew Catalina had complained about the traffic, She may have thought that she also called CPS. We don't know the custody arrangement for the daughter, but that might be why she was at her father's, because of the complaint. Well, one thing that we got to be careful with is making assumptions and jumping to conclusions. So, so, yeah, now my assumption when, when Mrs. Bendiola said that was that she was probably talking about Eva's daughter because Catalina, a couple things, as you say, you know, people said, well, she might have been talking about Jen or maybe... It was when um, Eva's mom lived there, and then she was talking about Eva being the young one that was left alone. But Eva's mom, had, I believe, had moved out before Catalina got there. But but to me, it, it sounded like, well, if she's concerned about a young girl, she's not talking about a teenager. She's probably talking about the four-year-old. But I don't, first of all, don't know if that is the case. And then there was some discussion on the fan page that I thought was good to, a good question to ask, um, which was, is it possible for us to find out if there was like some kind of CPS complaint? What I want to make clear is that, that we don't know. There's nothing that this is pure speculation based on what Mrs. Mendiola said that that happened. So I don't, I don't, I don't want anybody to get the impression that like we know there was some CPS complaint 
we don't know that. And from what I found out since then is I don't think we can find that out. I think all those records are are pretty private and pretty sealed. But it was you know it was a worthwhile question to ask and say you know again we're looking at I still maintain this was a personal cause homicide. That's Jim Clemente's opinion. It's mine as well. And therefore, you're looking for risk factors with any kind of conflict. And so, yeah, when you have, you know, and you, you when you've got the victim's wallet found in the apartment of the four people that were up there, those four people have to all be suspects. And when it's personal cause homicide, you're looking to see where could there be a connection. So I think it was a good thought to say maybe we should look and see, was there a CPS complaint? Because that would that would certainly be, you know, an, another huge risk factor. but. From what I understand, there's just no way for us to find that out, um, unfortunately. So um, there's there's not much else we can do with it, and I certainly don't want anyone. You know, we shouldn't be speculating that there must have been some complaint, or that, or even that it was Eva's daughter. We just don't know that. It's it's a worthwhile question to ask to see if there was some kind of conflict there, but unless we have that answer, that just needs to be left alone. Lynn says, "Have you strengthened your focus toward Eva having motive after talking to the Mendiolas?" No, I mean, I didn't. I didn't hear anything in that interview that made me think, "Oh, obviously, it's it's Eva." As a matter of fact, kind of the contrary. You know, when when they're telling me, you know, what her personality was like, that she wasn't much of a complainer. What I picked up from reading between the lines there is that she was also very independent. She would take care of things herself. It just doesn't. I don't know. I'm sure the complaints did happen. I mean, I'm positive they happened to be. There's just there's too many too many other witnesses saying that they did happen, but I just don't know. I, I didn't hear anything that made me think that Eva is any stronger or weaker of a suspect from they understand. Like, like my, when I say that in my opinion, Eva is a prime suspect, number one, that doesn't mean she's guilty of it. That's just, in my opinion, there's the most reason to be looking at her to try to investigate further, but it's not, I mean, the fact that she had a conflict certainly as part of that list, if this is a personal cause homicide, she's literally the only person we know that has a conflict with her. And we and I'm searching to see, is there anybody else? Is there any other conflict? But as of now, she's the only person we know that has any conflict. That's just a part of it. You know, more importantly with Eva, and some of the stuff we're going to be talking about again this in this week's episode, is the changing of her stories, the way that they change, the order and sequence of evolution of her different versions of her story, um, the lying about the alibi. There's a lot of reasons why Eva is a is a suspect for me, and Jennifer is still a suspect. And for that matter, Katie and Youngster still are, although, and to be quite honest, in my opinion, I don't think they were involved. I, I, I have a hard time even coming up with a scenario where they were. But because they were in the apartment, until we figure out who did it, they have to still remain on the list. Valeria says, can we get clarification from Mrs. Mendiola of the timings on the day Catalina was murdered? Mainly, would they really have gone off at 8 a.m. to the mall, or wouldn't it make sense that it was later? I, I think it was later. I mean, it, as I've said repeatedly, not just with this case, with any case, unless somebody has a very specific anchor and they had to, and they documented the time very close to the time of the event, when you ask someone 25 years later, when they never gave an official police report, it was never documented what they said at that time. And 25 years later, she's like, yeah, she called me at 730 and we were going to go. It doesn't mean that she called her at 730 and the, the, we're going to go. Who knows? You know, That's her memory now. But I don't, I don't think that we can base any kind of timeline off of that. And, and we have some, some confirmations, too. You know, We do have Juan saying, who now doesn't remember if he talked to her that day. And he, he heard her. He, he, said, he said, I might have that day. 
when I reread that report too, it, it didn't say that he talked to her every morning at eight o'clock. What the report says is that he talked to her often. And in fact, he talked to her that very morning, the morning of the murder at around eight o'clock and all was well at that time. And so that's why I think maybe Juan doesn't remember because it wasn't, you know, a routine for them. He's not sure about that, about whether or not he talked to her. I think he probably did um, because that's not even trial testimony. That's what he, according to Swainson's report, that's what he said that very day that he spoke with her that morning at eight o'clock and everything was fine. But, does, but that's just another example. You just can't, you can't hinge too much on, on very specific details uh, of memories from 25 years ago. Next, she says, did Mrs. Mendiola go to the apartment with Juan right after the call? He went straight from work. Wouldn't you have picked her up on the way? No, I don't think she was ever there. Though I, I mean, I've never seen any documentation that she was there. I don't think, unless I'm missing it, I don't think Juan or his wife said they were that she was ever there. I think he went straight from work, and I don't think his wife was part of that at all, unless maybe later going back to get the car. Next, she says, is there any way we can find out when Catalina's apartment was redecorated and rented again? Also, Sarah writes, do we know why it took six months to paint Eva's apartment and get it back on the market? I Some listeners brought this up on the fan page in the last couple of days, and I hadn't thought much about it, but it definitely got me wondering if something's not awry, if there's not some confusion going on there, maybe not even intentional, but just some confusion, because you know whose apartment it would make sense that it would take six months to get it ready to move into again? Catalina's. Catalina's, right? There's the blood. It's a murder scene. There's just a lot going on there. Why it would take, I mean, I used to work in an apartment complex as a maintenance supervisor in, in a complex about this size, and we didn't let apartments sit vacant. I mean, we even if they didn't rent them out right away, you know, we had teams that would just, you know, as soon as somebody moved out, we'd get them cleaned out. We'd bring the painters in, bring them, you know, put in the carpet. We called them make readies. Or we'd go in and you know do any kind of maintenance stuff we needed to do, have them ready to go. So it seems weird to me that it. I mean, I don't know how they did things, but but anyway, that the thought has been put out there. What if it wasn't? And, it, and it's led to some people hypothesizing. What if the wallet wasn't found in Eva's apartment at all, but it was found in Catalina's, and that was the one that was being painted? Uh, that's exactly what I was going to bring up. I, I've seen a lot of conversation about this, and, and I was wondering that myself. If that wallet is in Catalina's apartment behind the fridge, I think that changes quite a bit of stuff. I, I need to go back, and that may be something I maybe dig into next week um, as we're starting to you know hone in on some of these details in certain areas of the case right now. Because if I, if memory serves, didn't the officer say that he thought it was found behind a couch? I don't remember. All I remember is the is I thought it was said it was stuck between the coils of their fridge, but I could be wrong. That's what what Urbano Mandrano, I think his name, his name was. I think testified to, but there was but there was there's a bunch of weirdness because there was like I don't if I remember I haven't dug into this again, so so don't quote me on this, and I'll look into it more next week. But I there were some things like. I don't think he actually notified anybody about it. Like he found the wallet and just set it on the counter. And then Keith Truesdale found it later. And then Truesdale gives it to Cobb and then Cobb carries around in his car for several months. And then I think it was Cobb who said that it was found behind a, behind a couch. It's just, it's a, it's a lot of weirdness going on. And, and there's the, the whole fact that why did it take six months? 
to to get that apartment cleaned out, to get Eva's apartment emptied out and ready to go. It's just, I don't know. It's weird. It is extremely weird. Yeah, you know, and another thing would be Catalina, you know, again, with Eva's, she moves out the day after. She gave notice and moved out a couple, you know, she gave notice the day after Jennifer's arrested and then was out by the following Monday. And I, I think she, I think I read somewhere that she had left the place a mess. She just kind of took her clothes and stuff and just, I think she said that, and just pretty much left furniture and left everything there. But, you know, they, so then right away they're in, in November, they can start getting that unit ready to go. Would they have a legal obligation to leave it like that because they have suspected Jennifer of being there? I mean, would there be any legal obligation for that no, apartment complex to leave not it like unless that? it was put as a, you know, listed as a crime scene. If that was the case, then they would have found the wall a long time before that. Okay. But, but as far as like legal obligations, that's what I'm wondering is she gave a notice and she moved out so they can right away get in there and get that unit turned around. But in Catalina's place, she had a year lease, I think, that went all the way till February. And I can see that. And that might be a good follow-up question for, for Juan is, so, so when she, what would happen is she's, she's dead, obviously. Once the crime scene's cleared, now it's their obligation to get everything out of that apartment. There's a lot of emotions. There's a lot of stuff going on. They may not have wanted to go empty the apartment right away and she had a, a one-year lease that was going to take her into the following spring and her rent was what did i say 160 dollars a month or something something like that yeah so it could be catalina's could have stayed unrented for a long time because they might have just you know one might have just paid the rent to give them more time to come in later to, to go in and clean that up that apartment out and so it, it i my point is i can come up with reasons why it would take so long to re-rent Catalina's apartment. I can't imagine why they didn't re-rent Eva's apartment right afterwards, and there, which again opens up a whole can of worms about the the wallet and everything else. But that that's something that needs uh, needs a bit more of a deep dive. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Janaea says, I'm confused by Juan's testimony that he always spoke to her at 8 a.m. 25 years later and Mrs. Mendiola is adamant he left early for work that morning and she called her earlier instead. Juan doesn't come across like someone easily manipulated, so why would he testify to this? Well, I mean, like I said, we, we've addressed this already, but but one, you know, he, I've asked him those questions and he's just like, I don't I don't know. And then he's like, well, maybe I did. But the thing is, he 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 said he definitely didn't talk to her. He's pretty confident he didn't have a routine of talking to her every morning. Now, and that's what he ended up saying at, at trial in his testimony 
Uh, but even in the first police report, that's not what he said. So I, I don't know how much of that was manipulation, gaslighting, just faulty. Remember the trials a year later, you know, he's, it, it's hard. to. I, I don't have an answer for that. All, all I can tell you is that according to Swainson, he told him the day of the murder that he had talked to her that morning at eight in the morning and that he talked to her often. And then when, once he testified, he said he talked to her every day at eight in the morning. And the same issue with the knives. I don't know. And he didn't really know either. The knives he was very adamant about, though. You know, with the, with the call thing, he said, I don't know, maybe it could have been. I don't think so, though. He didn't remember that. Uh, but with the knives, he was the knife. He was very adamant that it was the police that were pressuring him. And as he, again, as he put it, hinting at him to say there was a knife missing when there wasn't anything identifiably missing. And then they were doing the same thing during the trial prep telling him that he had said that before when he says that he had never done it. All right, that's it for questions. But, Bob, I noticed that on the fan page, some listeners were pushing back a bit about you telling Juan that we know that the fake voice didn't happen. Do you want to address this? Yeah, uh, I've had a lot of long conversations about that on the fan page. Um, As I, I think I mentioned earlier, a lot of that was from my conversation with one in the kitchen so as i said so like zach was asking earlier there was there was a lot of kind of recapping so when i said like we know that didn't happen what i meant to Juan was because Juan and i had a long conversation about the voice and he's in his words that's bullshit he doesn't he doesn't believe it happened i don't believe it happened so when i say we know i meant me he and i we know that that didn't happen because we had kind of already agreed to that almost like that but that's been stipulated to that 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 didn't happen but that being said, it, that that generated some really good discussion about it, which led me down some rabbit holes and some other listeners down some rabbit holes. And that is actually what we are going to be covering on in Sunday's episode. Um, we're going to be do, doing a, a very deep dive into the the fake voice, whether it happened, if it didn't happen, where did the lie originate from, who's got the utility of telling the lie, and I think I think you'll be surprised at how much more clarity. We're getting out of this now that we're really focusing in on that specifically. So that's coming Sunday. Also, want to let you all know on True Crime Binge this week, I had on Tam Alex. Uh, for those of you that don't remember, season seven, the Jamie Snow case, the murder of Bill Little. Tam is the one that brought that case to me, and then as, as well as Jamie sending me the message in a bottle. After we wrap things up with season seven on Truth and Justice, she's continued the fight with her own podcast called The Snow Files. And so Tam is on True Crime Binge this week talking about the Snow Files, that production, and more importantly, updates on what's going on with Jamie Snow's case. And we just got lucky enough to get a little special special guest appearance by Jamie himself, who happened to be calling Tam right in the middle of our recording. So definitely check that out. That's True Crime Binge this week. And then make sure you check out Sunday when we're going to be really taking a close look at the the man disguising his voice inside of the apartment. So check that out on Sunday, and we'll talk to you guys next week. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. 
find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team. Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd really like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, Truth and Justice Pod. Just click the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. That's a wrap. That's the whole thing. I was going to say, do you want to say thanks for everybody that made it out last night? No. No. That's silly, Zach. That's silly. That's silly. That's, silly. Like that's something. That's something yeah, I would do. Stupid. That's something I would what do. Are we in a time machine? What are we in a, What is there a truth, truth and justice, justice time, time machine? machine. <laughs> Bye, guys. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, 
and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program.